Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Brandywine, Michael Harris. Michael Harris, author of Brandywine, a military history of the battle that lost Philadelphia but saved America. How did the Battle of Brandywine save America? Well, I argue kind of throughout that the, um, that the campaign, the British Army coming down towards Philadelphia, drew significant manpower away from other campaigns going on at the same time. And so John Burgoyne's campaign coming out of Canada down Lake Champlain, the Hudson River, that ultimately ends up in Saratoga, there aren't enough troops in New York to support that campaign because they're down here. And so Burgoyne, of course, we all know, loses and surrenders his army, and that ultimately leads to the French alliance. So the, the drawdown of troops into the Philadelphia area by the British Army helps doom Burgoyne. Did the British plan on having uh, the soldiers that were around Brandywine go up to New York and meet? Yeah, the they, um, it's, it's rather complicated, and I go into it in quite depth in the, in the book. At the, from the beginning of the war, from about late 1775 on, there was um, a plan in London and amongst the British High Command to um, divide New England off from the rest of the colonies. There was this thought that New England was the cause of all the troubles. And so the Hudson River was sort of the dividing line with the Lake Champlain Corridor. And so starting in 1776, that was kind of the plan. There was going to be an army that came down out of Canada. And that summer and fall, they, they did some of that. They got down and they captured Crown Point up, at, uh, up on Lake Champlain. And, um, and, and William Howe led an army into New York at the Battle of Long Island and they captured New York City. Well, that was all part of that plan. And then as you know, the winter of 1776 and into the spring of 1777, the thought was, well, that's still going to be the plan. We're just going to continue to go forward with that the, during that summer. And so John Burgoyne was going to lead this army out of Canada and uh, come down. And the idea was he was going to meet in Albany an army, coming, an army coming north from New York up the Hudson River. And William Howe was to lead that. However, Howe kind of has his own plans. Um, and he starts to feel that with the ease of the defeat of, the Ameri of Washington's army in 76, um, Philadelphia would be an easy capture. And sort of prevailing thought in Europe at that time, in, in European wars, if you capture the enemy's capital, you're going to win the war. And of course, you know, the American countryside hadn't developed to the point of Europe yet. You know, road networks and all towns and villages, all that kind of stuff. So, but Hal doesn't think along those lines. He's going to go get Philadelphia. And, but he says, at least he says, I could do it fast enough to get back to New York in time to help Burgoyne. That's what he says. But as you see, the, you know, those of you that, that read the book, you know, he, he takes so long to leave New York, like months. And then he goes on this ridiculously long voyage to get anywhere near Philadelphia. It sounds like he changes his mind halfway through. Changes his mind several times. I don't think he ever wholeheartedly uh, supported the, the whole Hudson River c campaign, this 
divide New England campaign off. Um, but, uh, you know, there's nothing definitive on that because, you know, House papers really don't survive. So it's kind of speculation and, and his testimony before Parliament when he, when he resigns and, and goes home in 1778. But um, the fact that, you know, he doesn't get even into Philadelphia until after the Battle of Brandywine, you know, late September, by then the first Battle of Saratoga has already taken place. And there was no way at that point for that army, for Howe's army or any portion of it, to get anywhere near to Burgoyne to help in, in enough time. So, so uh, paint the picture of Brandywine. I mean, first okay. of all, where is it for people who don't know? Okay, it's southeastern Pennsylvania. Today it's, it's partially Delaware County, Chester County. It's kind of on the border between Delaware and Chester County. At the time it was all Chester County. Delaware County is a newer county than the Revolutionary period. How far from the city? From Philadelphia it's about... 20, 25 miles, depending on where along the river we're talking about. But, you know, between 20 and 25 miles from, from down, from center, old city Philadelphia. Um, it's, uh, if you know where Chad's Ford is, near Longwood Gardens. It's not far from Longwood Gardens for those that are familiar with those areas. How did the two armies happen to meet at that place? Did somebody select it? Uh, I guess in a weird way they do. Because what happens is after Hal goes on this long sea voyage, he lands in northeastern Maryland near where Elkton is today. And um, he kind of does this slow maneuvering up and through northeastern Maryland into northern Delaware. And Washington had, had, by that point, marched overland from northern New Jersey, across the Delaware River, down through Philadelphia, into the Wilmington area. And there was uh, a series of natural defensive positions that Washington chose to defend. Um, one was the Red Clay Creek in northern Delaware. But Howe will outflank that position through marching. Not, no real fighting, but he outmaneuvers Washington from that defensive position because Howe really doesn't want to assault um, a strong defensive position because he's going to lose a lot of guys doing that. Um, and so when Washington's forced out of the Red Clay Creek position um, in early September of 1777, the next natural defensive barrier between Howe and Philadelphia was the Brandywine River. And so that's how Washington ends up, and, and why Chad's Ford specifically, the main road north to south, which is today U.S. Route 1. It was called the, um, uh, the Great Post Road or um, the Great Road to Nottingham, depending on where you lived at the time, um, went across the Chad's Ford. And so it was sort of natural that Washington's army is going to end up you know, within a mile or so of Chad's Ford because that's the main road. And, and with the Brandywine being a natural defensive position, um, steep banks, you know, you could only cross at the fords, there weren't no bridges. It was natural for Washington to end up there after he's outflanked out of the Red Clay Creek position. How big was the Brandywine then? How deep? The river? Oh, uh, it's, uh, um, I, we can only kind of guess because it was much deeper than it is now. Those people that are familiar with it or go kayaking on it today, you can walk across it almost anywhere. It comes up to maybe your knees. Um, but we know from British accounts that the fords where they could walk across were chest deep. So if the fords were chest deep, I can't imagine, I mean, the, the actual river itself had to be much deeper. And there had been quite a bit of rain in the weeks leading up to the battle, which had made it a little bit deeper than usual, too. So it, it was a significant military barrier. It's, it's odd to think today about a, a river as small as the Brandywine being an impenetrable barrier. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's and it's changed. And rivers all over the country are like this. It's even difficult with civil war battles, um, like the Rappahannock River in Fredericksburg, because um, over you know in the 20th century, all the irrigation, you know, farming irrigation and other reasons, you know, water's been drained or or dammed up off of these rivers, and so they're they're significantly more shallow now than they were in the 18th and 19th centuries. I want to back up a little bit and ask you about the, when Howe was first thinking of invading Philadelphia, he mm -hmm. put his troops on ships and they headed into the Delaware Bay? Initially, yes. And then they turned around? Yes. Um, that's a good question. So what happens is they, they mid-July, they get all these guys on ships, and, and a couple weeks later, like July 31st, I think is the date, they enter the mouth of the Delaware Bay. And as the story goes, according to Howe and his brother, Lord Richard Howe, who was the, who was the admiral of the fleet, um, they consult with a Captain John Hammond, who was the commander of the uh, Roebuck, who was a British uh, ship of the line, who was on uh, blockade duty in the Delaware. So theoretically, Hammond's the one familiar with the Delaware and its defenses. And so Hammond reports that Washington's army had crossed the Delaware. However, that's not accurate. Um, at most, maybe one brigade had crossed the river at that point. The rest of them are still on the New Jersey side. But Howe said when he left New York that he would not go up to Delaware if Washington's army had crossed it into Pennsylvania. So based on this inaccurate report from John Hammond, Howe decides to go back out to sea. And then the reason he gives later in testimony to Congress, or to Parliament, I'm sorry, back in England, and to others that he speaks to is that one of the reasons he chooses to go this long route up the Chesapeake Bay is he wants to threaten the Pennsylvania backcountry first, places like Lancaster, York, Reading, these, these supply depots for the Continental Army that were also prisoner of war camps. Um, like Lancaster was holding most of the prisoners that had been captured at Trenton, the Hessians. And so that's one of the reasons he gives. And, he, you know, the problem is I don't really think he ever truly intended to go up to Delaware. He had hinted, he was very secretive about his plans when they were still in New York, and he hints um, to his brother, the, the Admiral, and also to Joseph Galloway, um, who was a loyalist. He was the Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly prior to the war, and um, he kind of breaks rank. He served in the First Continental Congress, in fact. But when the, the war transgressed from into a, a war for independence, he switches sides, and he goes to New York, and he's one of the reasons that Hal chooses to go get Philadelphia. He tells them that there's all these loyalists in Philadelphia that'll flock to the British standard if they, if they just show up, which ends up not being true. Um, but he says that uh, in a letter or uh, his diary, I forget which, in, in one of his pieces of writing, he says that he guessed at the fact they were heading for the Chesapeake and that he questioned Hal about it. Hal goes, well, you don't know that that's where we're going. You know, and even if we were, and you know, he go, Basically, through a back and forth, Galloway figures out that that's where they're going based on the, on the few things that Hal lets slip in this conversation. So I don't think Hal ever really meant to come up to Delaware. I think the bigger mystery is why he ever, ever even stopped there to begin with. You know, only, they spent a day there, and then they would put it back out to sea. I think you always intend to go up to Chesapeake. And the great oddity about it is he, he says he wants to go up to the Pennsylvania backcountry. No sooner do they land on August 25th near Elkton they don't even go anywhere. He, he immediately changes his mind and says, well, we're not going anywhere near the, that back, those backcountry settlements. I need to make a connection with the fleet, so I'm going to head towards Wilmington. Well, you were just near Wilmington. Why did you even bother leaving that point? You know? it's, yeah, it's 
did did he know where Washington's army was, and did they they, they each know where the other was? Mm -hmm. I would say until Hal lands in Maryland, Washington had a better idea of where Hal was as opposed to the other way around. Because once they're on ships, the British Army's on ships, they don't really, unless they happen to spot troops along the coast, but they're, they purposely stayed far enough out to sea so their ships could not be spotted. So that that way Washington doesn't know where they are. That's the whole idea. Because, you know, there's not really a Continental Navy that's going to be able to keep an eye on them. And so um, I think Hal knows very little about where Washington is until he gets into Maryland. Um, because the same day that Hal lands at Maryland is the same day Washington's army marches through Philadelphia en route to meet up with them. And, and, and um, that's kind of confirmed by the fact they had bad intelligence at the Delaware. And, you know, that Hammond says that they were across the, the, the Delaware River up near Trenton, but they weren't. They were still in New Jersey. Now, Washington, on the other hand, posted... Uh, spotters, I guess we can call them, all along the coast, places like Egg Harbor and uh, Cape Henlopen in Delaware, so that every now and then when these storms, these sea storms that would hit the fleet would push the fleet in closer to the coast, every now and then they were being spotted. So Washington had a pretty good idea that they were heading south. Now when they um, entered the Delaware or were spotted off Cape Henlopen, that's when he starts moving his army out of northern New Jersey towards Philadelphia. But when they go back out to sea to head to the Chesapeake, there, there enters a mystery into Washington's head. You know, where, where are they really going? Are they heading back to New York to cut us off, or, or are they going farther south? And so Washington actually hangs out for a while along the Shammy Creek north of Philadelphia. That way, if he had a rush back to New York, he wasn't too far south. Um, and it's also one of the reasons he doesn't come down to Delaware until like August 26th or 27th with the Army, which is after the British had landed. How big was Washington's Army at the time? Uh, it's going to fluctuate quite a bit. Um, one of the things you got to remember, and I go into quite a bit about this at the, the first part of the book, is that Washington's army basically disintegrates after Trenton and Princeton early in 1777. That was the big win, the big success. Correct, but the army enlistments for, for one year, and they were all expiring. So um, a lot of the guys that went home, they were gone. They ba literally had to build a whole new army through the spring and summer of 1777. So numbers are real guesswork all through the spring and summer. But we have um, a, a troop return, uh, like muster rolls almost, for um, May. And so we can kind of build off of that and get a general idea of what size the Army was at Brandywine. And I put them at around 16,000. And uh, Howe's Army's ab uh, about 15,000. Why would somebody join the Continental Army? Oh, man, many reasons. Um, uh, it's going to be um, the hope for adventure. Especially the young people want to get away and get away from their parents, especially the teenagers. Um, a chance to experience the country, see, see the country, see what the world's like a little bit. Some of it's because they're generally interested in the cause. Um, they want a chance to, to achieve this concept of independence, which was still very bleak in 1777. Um, others are, um, are hoping for freedom. Uh, some of the southern states um, allow black recruitment or African-American recruitment to, and if they serve honorably, they could earn their freedom. Um, or it was a way so that the whites could not be drafted into the army, they could send in their slaves as substitutes. So the, um, uh, some of it's a, uh, a business venture for some of the officers, you know, they're trying to, you know, make money off of supplying the army. Um, but it, it's a wide range of reasons, not, not much different than reasons why men served in other wars.
You yeah. say in here, one of the myths of the American Revolution is that the Continental Army that defeated the British regulars was composed of Indian fighters, crack shots, and men who had spent their lives wielding their deadly long rifles. Yeah. That's I a myth? Yeah. Uh, I would say 98% of the army does not come from that element of the, of the country. Yes, there were some of those in the army. But of the troops that served at Brandywine, I think maybe just a couple regiments would have literally been armed with long rifles. The rest of them are carrying smoothbores, not much different than the type of weapons the British Army's carrying. Um, now there were um, specialized elements of the Army that were recruited from the backcountry areas of Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania. Um, but the bulk of them actually were sent to fight Burgoyne at Saratoga under Daniel Morgan. So they're not with Washington and Brandywine. And so, yeah, it's one of these myths that the whole army was made up of these guys that are picking off officers. And, but, you know, 95% of them have these very inaccurate smoothbores that can barely hit something at 50 yards, let alone a couple hundred. What kind of training did they get? At this point in the war, very little for the American army. Um, remember, they had just been, they're building a new army, basically. So other than some of the officers and maybe some of the senior NCOs, none of them had served the previous year. And so they're kind of learning on the fly, you know, marching, proper uh, deportment, um, equipment's even not perfectly supplied at this point. They're kind of learning on the go through these battles in 1777. It's not going to be the Valley Forge if they get the professional training by uh, von Steuben. Did, did they have uniforms? Some do, some don't. It, it almost depends on what uh, state they were from. Some states were better about supplying the troops than others. Most of them do not have a uniform look going in the battle. Were they paid? They were supposed to be. Uh, I don't very infrequently. Let me put it that way, because uh, you know lack of funding coming from Congress. What was it like to move an army? I mean, Washington had sixteen thousand or so soldiers, and he had to move exceptionally from one difficult area um, to another. Yeah, remember, there's no paved roads. There's no macadamized roads. You had it's all dirt. So if you get uh, really rainy weather, it's it's a slog through mud, and you're pulling these heavy supply wagons and artillery pieces through um, mudded, rutted roads. It's one of the reasons they don't fight in the winter because the roads are impassable. Um, but you, you, know, you know, a column of troops could take several hours to pass a point. You know, the army coming through Philadelphia, it, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it, it takes them like three or four hours for the army to pass through Philadelphia, you know, past the State House, which is now Independence Hall. You know, so it gives you an idea of, you know, about, at that point, about 12,000 troops. It took three to four hours from the pass one spot. How many cannons did they have to move? That's one of the things we're not able to absolutely positively confirm. There's not really good um, co uh, ordnance records for the Army. So we really don't know how many artillery pieces were with either Army, in fact. Um, we can kind of guess at it and come up with an estimate, but we're not, it's not absolutely sure. Um, like we know at certain points of the battle, we know there, there were, say, two guns here or four guns here, but how many total were with the Army, we just don't know. Uh, you you write about the there was the Continental Army and then the militias. Correct. And you say in here, uh, Washington concluded, if I were, if I was called upon to declare upon oath whether the militia have been most serviceable or hurtful upon the whole, I should subscribe to the latter. Yeah, he did not. He's not like a big him. fan of the militias. Because um, throughout the war, several points that even prior to Brandywine, they had not done well. Um, they had not fought well in Long Island. They had basically abandoned the army during the retreat across northern New Jersey in late 76. Um, they don't perform all that well in slowing the British down in northeastern Maryland and Delaware. 
And so when they get into Pennsylvania, um, you have now this Pennsylvania militia. Because one of the things is militia units were not required to cross state borders. Now, it does happen in, at different points during the war, but they weren't re made to do it. And so one of the issues with the Pennsylvania militia specifically was it was a new entity. Prior to 1777, there was no militia law in Pennsylvania because of the, the Quaker control of the assembly. And so it was just a, a fairly new concept in Pennsylvania to have these militia troops forming up at, um, for these short terms of service. And so, that, so that's part of the problem, is that they weren't required to serve like a year or two years. They were like, you know, six weeks or 60 days, depending on how long they were activated for. And then not everybody had to go. So like, say a community had a company. Well, only a third of that company would have to report when they were activated. The other two thirds could stay home, and then they rotated them. So you know, you're, just as like these guys were starting to get trained and maybe good at what they were doing, they'd rotate home and a whole new batch would come in. So there were a lot of issues with them. And so, um, one of the reasons Washington places them where he does along the defensive line of the Brandywine is he didn't think he would need them where he put them. You know, that way he didn't have to really worry about what they would do. <laughs> you, you say in your part about the aftermath of the battle, the performance of the militia from the beginning of the campaign through the battle disgusted Timothy Pickering. Mm -hmm. How amazing that Howe should march from the head of Elk to the Schuylkill, a space of 60 miles without opposition from the people of the country except a small band of militia around the Elk wrote Washington's adjutant general, such events would not have happened in New England. Exactly. Yeah, New just, England had better militia. Yeah, New England's militia fought very well. Remember, it's the New England militia, militia that fight Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill, which is actually Breed's Hill. It's all New England militia. There's no Continental Army yet. And they had all performed ad very well. And it's a lot of militia that flocks to help uh, Horatio Gates at uh, Saratoga that fight Burgoyne. A lot of that army, a big chunk of that army's militia as opposed to Continentals, which is completely different than the army under Washington, which is almost entirely Continentals and very little militia. Yeah. So as the British approached Brandywine mm -hmm. and Washington was in between the British and Philadelphia, was his goal to protect Philadelphia or to take on the British? And, and I think the goal them? is more, A, to protect Philadelphia. I think there was multiple goals. Protect Philadelphia. Um, maneuver himself into a position where he would have the advantage over the British. I don't think he wanted to uh, uh, assault the British Army with this uh, novice army, we'll call it. Uh, I don't think he wanted to find them in an open field fight and, and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, like he will do at Monmouth the next year. Um, he I had never done that up to that point? No, because at Trenton and Princeton, which were technically offensives, he hit outposts um, in the, you know, early in the morning, um, when they weren't prepared, you know, they caught him in bed at, at Trenton and practically did so at Princeton, too. He caught a column in March at Princeton. So, you know, they weren't, it wasn't the principal American Army versus the principal British Army at those two places. And so I don't think he, and I think he knew the Army wasn't ready for that. And so um, part of it was to protect the Army, keep it in a pl place where it could, in theory, he could not lose. Or if it did lose, he could get it out of there and extricate it to use some other day. Um, so I don't think his purpose was to, to go find Hal and take him on. It was to try, try to protect Philadelphia from behind the Brandywine. Yeah. How good a general was Washington? Not a good one. <laughs> Not a good one. <laughs> nah. I think, um, and don't take that the wrong way, I think Washington's greatness does not come from battlefield victories. I mean, he only wins at Trenton and Princeton. 
And you could say he wins at Yorktown, but without the French fleet, that never happens. He loses everywhere else. Um, but Washington's greatness is not from tact, you know, his tactics or his strategy. It's the fact he doesn't let that army fall apart. Um, because the, the army becomes a symbol of the revolution, not the Congress. The Congress is weak and inept. It's one of the reasons we have to create a constitution after the war, because the Articles of Confederation were just useless. And so Congress had no power. And so if the army, though, had fallen apart or disintegrated after one of these losses, the whole concept of the revolution would have collapsed with it. And so Washington's greatness doesn't come from battlefield victories. It comes from, you know, he's a people person. He never lets that army, through all the bad stuff it goes through, he never lets that army collapse. What did he do to, to engender that feeling? You, you re refer in the book that basically the, the soldiers were willing to die for him. Yeah, because he, you know, he wasn't afraid, you know, he, he um, man, how do I answer that? He would, um, he would talk to, like when the officers had complaints, he would personally try to settle their problems. If, um, you know, he, even, I, I don't know how much the, 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 the troops knew it, but I think the officers knew how much he was petitioning Congress to get them the clothes they needed and the equipment they needed. Um, and I think the troops trusted him not to put them in a position of vulnerability. Um, and, you know, he, um, he would ride to the front lines. He wasn't afraid to get into the thick of it. There's several occasions through the war where people take shots at him. Um, in fact, at Brandywine, he almost gets hit twice. Um, so I think the troops knew that. You know, they, they could respect somebody that can get into the thick of it with them. You do say that toward the back of the book, after the, the aftermath, many British and Hessian officers expressed praise for the Continental effort and Washington's management of the battle. Uh, William Howe's aide, Captain von Munchausen, praised the American effort. As far as I can tell, Washington executed a masterpiece of strategy today by sending his columns from his right to his left in the beginning. Soon after this, Washington withdrew from his left wing. All this was done with great speed and especially good order. Yeah, um, so, you know, explain a little bit. You know, basically Washington, um, on the, the day before the battle, September 10th, 1777, he lines his divisions up um, behind the fords he thinks Howe's going to cross at, basically from about a mile south of Chad's Ford to about a mile north of Chad's Ford is the bulk of the army. There's um, several fords north of there. He has some outposts at some of them, but some of the fords aren't being watched by anybody. Um, and so um, Washington's plan basically is don't let them across the river. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the very basics of it. And then if they do get across the river, we'll deal with it. Um, now, Howe's plan is basically the exact same plan he used several times previously in the war. He's going to send a diversionary column against Washington's main position, while a stronger column makes a long flank march to come to the, uh, to the enemy's rear, to Washington's rear. And so that's what happens. Um, one column's going to come up what's today U.S. Route 1, pass where Longwood Gardens is, and fight against where uh, Washington's main positions are around Chad's Ford as a diversion. It's basically an artillery duel, some skirmish, and that, it wasn't meant to be heavy fighting but from the British point of view. While a much larger column under, under Howe's personal direction with Charles Cornwallis makes a 17-mile flank march and crosses at these fords that aren't being watched, and they get into Washington's rear, to his right rear, um, near where Birmingham Meeting House is, for, if people are relatively familiar with the Chester County area. And so Washington, by, when he gets this intelligence that they're up there, which he has to rush troops from the front of Chad's Ford to the right. And so he manages to get almost three divisions into position before the British assault takes place. And 
and they don't fight that bad. Uh, basically, they lose because they're outnumbered, and they're eventually get, both sides are going to be wrapped around and outflanked because they're outnumbered. But they don't fight that bad, considering you know the lack of experience of the army. And so that's what von Munchausen is referring to: is that he's able to shift these troops around because he's got interior lines, and so he could shift these guys around to get in a position to at least try to make it less of a defeat than it, than it could be. How do you do that in, a, in an 18th century battle without much communication? Do you just yell at people and have No, them couriers, get... horseback, yeah. There's no, because you know, there's no radios, no telegraph, no GPS, none of that stuff. So it's all by courier. And, there's, and the, the, the officer we have the best accounting of what's going on that day is John Sullivan, who was a division commander, commanded the, the, the troops on the far right in the American line um, at Chatsford. And then when they shift, he's put in command of the troops to the north, too. And um, he refers several times in his post-battle writings to sending couriers, sending messages. And they're handwritten. You know, and um, some of those, those messages survive in Washington's papers. They handwrite written messages. So. Well, since you mentioned John Sullivan, mm -hmm. he, he gets kind of a bad rap yes, he uh, does. out of this day. Does he deserve it? No, he's not to blame. He gets blamed for... Um, I think a couple reasons. He previously in the war had done some things that Congress did not look favorably upon. He gets captured on Long Island during that battle and he's largely blamed for that loss because he's captured, although it's not entirely his fault. And then one of the bad things that happens while he's a prisoner, William Howe uses him as a messenger boy to go to Congress to offer peace. And so Congress has no interest in, in peace at that point because just prior to him showing up they had declared independence. And so it was just kind of bad timing on Sullivan's part. Um, and then the, prior to Brandywine in 1777, he's, his division is going to stay detached from the main army for a significant period of time, from like July up until right before Brandywine. He's not with the rest of the army, with his division. And during that separation, he uh, assaults, makes an assault on Staten Island, New York, with his troops. And while initially successful, he ends up getting pushed back and loses a couple hundred guys in the retreat. And so that debacle, coupled with his reputation for Long Island, doesn't make, give him a favorable look in the eyes of Congress. And so when, the, the, when Brandywine's over and the Americans had lost, there was a congressman, um, it's not real clear why he's with the Army, but there was a congressman from North Carolina, Thomas Burke, with the Army that day. And after it's all over, he knows that Sullivan had been put in command of the divisions that went up to confront the flanking movement. And while it's not Sullivan's fault that they lost up there on the, on the right, he gets blamed by this guy Thomas Burke, probably because of his prior reputation. But, you know, I make the argument in the book um, is that, you know, if you look at the evidence and what really went down that day, and if you look at the British point of view, it's not, even other officers in the American Army, none of them blame Sullivan. It's not his fault it all went bad. It's really Washington's fault, you know, for, for improper interpretation of the intelligence coming in that day of the flanking movement. There's probably one new book, at least one new book a month about Gettysburg, mm -hmm. and maybe every five years a book about Brandywine. Why is that? Uh, well, I, I argue in the preface when I talk about the historiography of the battle is there's not a lot written about American losses during the Revolution. There's very few books on Camden, um, Germantown, Brandywine, Long Island, tons of books. So you can find several on Saratoga, Yorktown, Monmouth, all these places we won. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with it. If you look at, um, you know, the earliest histories of the country, you know, the stuff written in the 1800s, they kind of gloss over where we lost, and then they glorify these great victories and these guys that won these great battles. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think part of it is that um, 
the site has never really had um, long-term professional management to have somebody down there to write a professional history on the battle. And so I think that's part of it. You know, it's um, the ground that the, the state owns today is is only a 50-acre plot, and most almost no fighting took place where the park is. And so I think that all combines with the fact that it's it's a difficult battle to research. You know, a lot of the for any Revolutionary War battle, you know, a lot of the sources are in England or Germany. So you got to really want to track the stuff down. Um, and uh, I, it's just not popular. And I think Civil War is so popular that people are willing to write because they think they can sell books on the Civil War. But I think this stuff's more interesting. <laughs> you, you say in here that if about nine years ago you were hired to serve as the museum educator at Brandywine Battlefield State Historic Site. Well, first of all, it's a state historic site, not a national. No, that, not, I think that's another reason why it's been, uh, it's, it's lacked good writing. Um, it's because it's not one of the national parks. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it was state operated um, from, I forget what year they acquired it, mid 20th century, the state acquired it. But the state stopped operating it in 2009 when, when the economy collapsed and budget cuts. And now it's run by a friends group, um, a lot of volunteer work. So um, there's, a, there's much less professional uh, staff there than there used to be. What did you do as a museum? As the educator, I was responsible for any aspect of the interpretation. So I supervised the guide staff, the people that gave the tours. I did the research for any research questions that came in. Um, I created new programming for the public, brought in authors to speak, you know, that kind of stuff. Anything related to interpretation. If you go to the battlefield today, what do you see? Well, they still, um, to the actual park, there's a, there's a small museum in the visitor center. Um, there's a movie you can watch about, you know, the basics of the battle. Um, they give tours of the house that Washington uses as headquarters prior to the battle. Um, and then there's the, you know, that, that roughly 50 acres that's there. Now they do, I don't know if they still do, at least when I was there, that you could buy like a, like for a dollar, there was a driving tour map you could get that actually takes you onto the, out into the areas where the actual fighting took place outside the park boundaries. How big an area is that where the battle actually took Ten place? Ten square miles. It's a large, one, if not the one of the largest land battles of the war, space-wise, it took up a lot of space. It's a much bigger battlefield than Saratoga or Monmouth or Germantown, Yorktown. It's a very big space. You also say it was the largest battle in terms of troops, 30,000? Yeah, about 30,000 troops engaged, which makes it bigger than, um, a lot of people argue that, York, that uh, Long Island's bigger, but actual troops engaged at Long Island's less. There's a, the armies are bigger, but they're not all fighting at, at Long Island. Same thing with Monmouth. Um, Saratoga's smaller, Yorktown's smaller, so yeah. Who were Washington's key people there? Well, his division commanders, he's got five division commanders. Uh, we talked about John Sullivan. He's also got uh, Lord Sterling, Adam Stephen. Lord Sterling, and he was fighting on the... Uh, yeah, he, um, he's actually from, at the time of the war, he's living in northern New Jersey. He had a false claim to, I think it's a Scottish land title. Um, but it's real wishy-washy. Nobody's for sure if it's a true claim, if there's any fact to it. Um, but he claimed at the time, a lot of people referred to him as Lord Sterling. His actual name is William Alexander. Um, but everybody refers to him, even Washington, as Sterling. Um, so it's, yeah, it's Sterling, Sullivan, Adam Stephen, uh, Anthony Wayne, and Nathaniel Green were the division commanders. When did Anthony Wayne become mad Anthony Wayne? That comes about... I think later in his life, he gets this sort of reputation for being hot-headed and uh, and rash to judgment and to action. But I don't know if it's 
I think it's a post-war thing that people have assigned to him. I don't think it was referred to him at that time. I've never found any documents of people calling him Mad Anthony Wayne in the 1770s at least. And uh, Alexander Hamilton was there also? Yeah, he's a staff officer for Washington. He's an aide-de-camp, I believe, at the time. Um, I think he's a lieutenant colonel at the time. Um, yeah, works for Washington, basically, delivering messages, giving orders, that kind of thing. And Marquis de Lafayette was there? Yeah. Now, he's technically a major general at the time, but he does not hold a command at Brandywine. He'd only linked up with Washington maybe a couple, maybe a month, a couple weeks before the battle. He's not with the Army up in North Jersey. He links up with Washington when they're passing through Philadelphia. He had just came over from France and uh, landed in South Carolina, if my memory serves, and then traveled north to link up with uh, Congress in Washington. And so um, he's technically an unattached general in Washington staff to start the day. And um, as the battle progresses and they shift these divisions to the north to deal with the flank attack, he asks Washington to go up there to be in the thick of it. And Washington says, yeah, okay, you can go. And um, he goes up there and helps try to hold the line with the other American generals up there. And he gets wounded in the thigh in the process. Um, and then he's going to be out of action because of that wound for most of the rest of the year. And we talked about how good George Washington was in, as a general. And on the British side, William Howe, General Howe, was the British commander. How good a general was he? He's pretty good. Um, I don't know, strategi strategically, he always makes the right decisions because of what happens to Burgoyne. I mean, that's a strategic de decision to come down here. But tactically, he's brilliant. You know, um, he... Um, never wants to make these frontal assaults. He had been at uh, Breed's Hill in 1775 and saw and took part in those horrific casualties that took place there. And he, and he never wanted to make a frontal assault again. So he constantly is outmaneuvering Washington out of strong positions or outflanking him in a strong position to get the advantage. And that's what he did at Long Island. He does it um, down near Cooch's Bridge in Delaware. He does it at Brandywine. Um, so he's very brilliant tactically. Now, where he comes up short, is in follow-through. Almost everywhere, he, he crushes Washington's army several times and almost never follows it up with a, a solid pursuit, whether the night of the battle or the next day. He always lets Washington get away. And there's many, many theories on that, one of which is that you know he kind of sympathized with the Americans and didn't really want them to lose, um, didn't have his heart in, the, in, the, in it as much as he probably should have. But for whatever reasons, he never fully follows up with all these smashing victories he has and he always lets Washington get away so if he has a fault it's that. And, uh, and who are some of Howe's key people? Now, you mentioned two names that come up uh, quite a bit in the book uh, Niphausen mm -hmm. and um, von Munchhausen and okay. they do not sound like English no, names. No they're, they're uh, both Hessian officers. There's two, wa uh, while Washington has five divisions Howe has two two divisions, but they're much bigger than Washington's divisions. One's commanded by Wilhelm von Knipphausen, who's a senior Hessian officer in North America. The other one's commanded by Charles Cornwallis, who's the guy that surrenders at Yorktown later in the war. But um, von Munchausen, who you mentioned, is actually an aide-de-camp to Howe. And I, he gets quoted a lot because he left a lengthy account of the battle of Howe's movements that day. And so that's why he's quoted so much, because he's with Howe, like, constantly. Yeah. Um, is there some moment in the battle that you desperately would have wanted to witness? I would like to have seen, there's a, not a good moment, but I think comically I would have liked to have seen what really went down. Because what happens when Sullivan is, is sent north with these three divisions, 
Stephen Sterling's, and his own Sullivan's. Sullivan's put in command of all three of those divisions. And the result of that is Sullivan's own division is now put in command of his senior brigade commander, which is, which is this guy Prudhomme de Moray, who's a Frenchman, spoke very little English, wrote very bad English because he didn't know the language that well, who's now in command of these English-speaking troops. And Sullivan's own division is the first to collapse up on Birmingham Hill that day. And they're retreating and they're running away. And one of the um, other senior colonels in the, in the division, this guy, Colonel John Stone, rallies a fairly significant portion of the division to try to get them back into the fight. And when Debore rides up to, um, to, to witness this, Stone says, well, you know, do you want to take command of these guys? I, you know, I got them all rounded up. You should take them. And, and Debore, you know, says, oh, my God, they're all running away. Nobody's listening to me. We can't get them to stop. And they're shooting fish hooks at me. Um, and he points at some scratches on his cheek, and, and Stone later says, this is the scene I would have liked to have seen, is, is Stone's reaction. Because Stone says, no, he just rode through the briars and the brumbles in the woods. He didn't get in with no fish hooks. I just think it's comical. It's not a definitive moment of the battle, but I, I would have liked to have witnessed that. Now, you mentioned Birmingham Hill, and that seemed to be kind of a key moment in the battle. What happened yeah, there? Where, and where is it right now? Okay, it's, um, how do I explain it? It's outside... It's kind of between Westchester and Chad's Ford. Is it um, built up or is it Parts of it are. Some of it's been preserved with easements. Um, some of it's township parkland now. Um, but it's, um, uh, it's hard to explain. Basically, it's just south of Route 926 today, which kind of cuts across the, uh, the route of advance of the British Army. They came across Street Road to assault Birmingham Hill. So how was it significant in the battle? Well, that's where the three divisions that get sent north by Washington form up a defensive line to try to stop this flank attack. Mm. Um, and it was a pretty good piece of ground. Um, they were on, you know, basically a ridge line. I mean, we call it Birmingham Hill Day, but it's basically, you know, a long, low ridge. There was uh, woods behind the Americans, a wood line. There was a fence line in front of them so they could, you know, defend this fence line more or less. And then it was rolling open ground down towards Street Road. Um, that the British had to come across to assault them. So they had good avenues of fire, good artillery positions. Um, and in theory, it probably would have worked. They might have been able to stop them, except one of those divisions did not quite get in position in time. It just ran out of time. And that was Sullivan's own division that the Bory was involved with that whole collapse. And um, it was a pretty good position. It's where the heaviest fighting of the battle took place. It's where the British, you know, it was... Um, several British assaults against those divisions, um, and the most casualties took place there. I want to read you something else in your book. And under, under final analysis, everyone agrees Washington suffered a tactical defeat along the Brandywine. Despite having been defeated and outmaneuvered by Howe at least five times prior to September 1777, and you list the five, yeah. Washington was somehow unprepared for its use of the Brandywine. Howe's tactical success was more the result of Washington's failure to learn from his mistakes than his brilliance. So over and over, Howe did this outflanking maneuver and Washington didn't yeah, learn from I've it? Yeah, I've kind of referenced it a few times, but you know, Long Island, he does it to him. Uh, he does it to him um, at a place called Short Hills in northern New Jersey in June of 1777. And then he does it in um, Delaware a couple times at Cooch's Bridge. And in the maneuver to outflank him out of that Red Clay Creek position we talked about. Um, and then he does it, it's textbook, it's the same thing every time. He sends a diversionary column and then a strong flanking column. And I don't 
I mean, it's one of the, you know, we talked about earlier, you know, was Washington a good general? This is just one of the re many reasons he's not a good tactician. You know, I don't want to take anything away from why he is great and why he became our first president because there are, he does have great attributes. He's just bad on a battlefield. Didn't learn from his mistakes. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't learn from his mistakes. Was this the first battle where the uh, Betsy Ross flag was flown? I don't think so. I think that's one of the great myths of the battle. And I, there's several myths I deal with throughout the book. But, um, you know, there's several authors that have said over the years that um, if it was not used at Cooch's Bridge in Delaware just prior to Brandywine, then it was used at Brandywine. But there's no prior, I've not found at least any primary evidence for it. Um, yes, there was a, um, an act of Congress creating what we now think of as the American flag, um, I think in July of 1777. But there's nowhere documented that it was used in battle by anybody that would have been there to see it. Um, there's two places it may have been used in 1777. One is at Fort Stanwix as a fortification flag in August of 17, like over the fort it's, it flew. And then there's some theory that it was used at Fort Mifflin in November uh, after Brandywine along the Delaware. Um, but as it was originally used and intended, it was more of a fortification naval flag. It's not really being carried by regiments in the battle like we think of the Civil War. Regimental flags for the Continental Army were a very design, color, uh, look. None of them were uniform. There was no standard flag for the Continental Army. Um, and then the American flag, as we think of it, really doesn't become the symbol of the country to the federal period, till after the Constitution. And um, in fact, a lot of paintings of the war, like the Surrender of Yorktown, where you see the American flags in, in the paintings. If you, if, there's been analysis of those paintings now that they were painted over in, during the federal period over the original look of the flags. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I argue that because there's no primary documentation for the flag in battle, I don't think it was there. That's my argument for it. How long did you work on this book? The research probably took eight years. And then it was about nine months to write it. And then it was in editing for about a year. So about almost 10 years. When you were researching it, how often did you come across things that were written into history books that you said, but that just ain't so? A lot. <laughs> a lot. Um, you know, and that's one of the reasons I opted to go this route. I didn't originally set out in the research to write the book. It was originally I was working there. We didn't have a lot of good research files at the park, and that's how it started, you know, just compiling it so we had it. In case somebody asked, we could go look it up. And then um, through that process, you know, when I was still working for the state, I needed a master's degree to advance. And so I started working on a master's degree in uh, military history. And so every time I wrote a paper for a course, somehow I tied it into Brandywine, which forced me to do more research. And so it just kind of kept building and building and building. And then in, in the process of one of those papers, I wrote a historiography paper. What's that? It's the history. It's basically the history of history, mm. of how something's been interpreted through time. And so when I was working on that paper, was when I discovered that there was all these myths, all these things we accepted as fact. And then when I started digging back to try to find the primary document or the first source that said it, a lot of those first sources were Victorian accounts or mid-1800s accounts written by people that weren't there or were written many years after the battle. And so um, when I finished up my thesis for my master's, I had a... Um, um, limit the length of that because of the, the parameters of the paper. And so I had to leave out all this discussion of the myths and the, um, the effect on civilians in the campaign. I had to leave all that out of my thesis. And so when I finished my master's, I contacted my publisher, um, didn't know the guy, didn't, they didn't know me, and I said, look, this is what I'm interested in doing. 
I'd like to expand my thesis into a bulk length treatment and uh, deal with all these myths that are out there. And um, they were interested, and that's how it became, a, it, it got to this point. Yeah. You, uh, was Hector a, a real person, or was he a myth? Uh, yeah, I think he does exist. Or no, I don't think. I know he existed. Oh, he's on the um, muster rolls. You're talking about uh, Ned Hector. Right, no, yeah, Ned Hector. Is the uh, Edward Hector. Yeah, his yeah. nickname's Ned, yeah, yeah, Edward Hector. He's on the muster rolls for the Pro for Proctor's Artillery Regiment. It was a Pennsylvania unit. He's listed there, He and he's listed as a Negro, and he's listed um, as a, a bombardier, I think is the term they use. And so he definitely existed, and he was on the muster rolls prior to Brandywine. He was most, even almost most likely at Brandywine. They called them bombardiers then? Yeah, it was a, it was a term for, for, it was like a, almost like a rank. It was like, um, they dealt with preparing the ammunition for the, for the actual artillery piece, like prepping it to go in the gun. It was a, uh, a term that uses, um, just like a, uh, like a teamster almost, it's just another term. Mm -hmm. So I, do, I absolutely believe he's there. Now, whether the story of him saving the wagons and all that is accurate, I could go either way on that because the source for that story is actually his um, his obituary file that was listed in the newspaper. Or I forget what year that he died. That's where the that's the earliest source I have for the actual story of him saving these ammunition wagons during the battle. And so I kind of go either way on that one. It might have happened or it might not have happened. It's kind of wishy-washy, and I and I kind of leave it that way in the book. You know, it's open to reasonable doubt, but it might have happened. You, know? you you said in the book that, or you said earlier in this discussion that um, the the offer was out there for uh, uh, slaves who wanted to mm -hmm. enlist would, could earn their freedom. Were many able to take up that offer? Uh, we don't know exact numbers now. As the war goes on, we know that more and more do because when they start to implement. Um, conscri conscription to try to force guys in the because they were having as the war went on it was getting harder and harder to recruit and so I know a, a lot of the southern states start to go towards it more and more so that the, the, the whites don't have to go um, but the actual numbers it's hard to say um, and it's even hard to say for Brandywine like I found pretty good statistics for Virginia regiments so we have rough idea of what percentage of the Virginia regiments um, were African-American at Brandywine um, and New England isn't as fast to move on it um, as some of the other states. And, uh, you know, and Pennsylvania's pretty slow to move on it. Um, now, Rhode Island's going to be one of the ones that does. They form a whole regiment of African Americans um, that end up fighting later in the Philadelphia campaign and throughout the war. So, but it's just, uh, it's hard to say exact numbers. Were the uh, British able to recruit from American loyalists? Oh, yeah. There was whole regiments of loyalists. Um, that were, uh, but they were they were viewed as second class troops. You know, they weren't. They were rarely given um, quality combat assignments. They were usually used as, as garrison troops, or for rear echelon areas for protecting supply lines. Almost like the British didn't trust them. Um, in fact, at Brandywine, there's only one Loyalist regiment with the whole army. It was a unit called the Queen's Rangers. Most of the Loyalists that had been recruited in '76 were left in New York. They were not with the army. Yeah. We only have a few minutes left. We haven't talked a whole lot about the battle. Oh, well, now, we have a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, when the battle, at, at what point did Washington start realizing, uh-oh, we're losing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably, I would imagine he starts to panic when he has to shift the three divisions to the north. Um, and then when that position collapses, you know, between three or four o'clock in the afternoon, he personally rides to that um, sector of the field 
to deal with the collapse and to try to stabilize the line. And by then, he, he had to have known it was a loss. But he had to start feeling bad, I would think, when he has to start rushing troops to confront that, that, that issue up there. Um, but he doesn't actually say in his report or his writings when he got worried. But I would imagine by mid-afternoon he was in a pretty bad state. What did he do then? Um, when he rides up north? When he decided he was losing. Uh, he basically creates a stable, tries to stabilize an avenue of retreat. Um, um, by the point, by the time he rides up north, the only troops left at Chad's Fort are Anthony Wayne's division, the Pennsylvania militia we talked about, and a, and a small organization called uh, light, the Light Infantry under William Maxwell. And so he leaves them down there to hold the main road open, the that you know what's today U.S. Route One, you know as an avenue of retreat, and he rushes Nathaniel Green's division up to the, this northern front, um, actually south of the village of Dilworth, where the Dilworth Town Inn is today. And so Green's division is going to be used on that front to, to hold the road open for the, the remnants of the divisions that fought on Birmingham Hill to get out. And so basically that's what he does. He tells those, you know, basically tells Wayne and Green, hold the roads open till dark and we'll get the army out of here. And that's what happens. They retreat to Chester that night. So they were all able to get, how fast did they move? Well, not very fast, but it was also dark. You know, by the time the last shots are fired, the, the last British attack happens against Green's division. It's after 6 o'clock. You know, there's no daylight savings, so it's, it's getting dark. It's September. You know, there's a lot of confusion. You know, a lot of the... Howe's army was also extremely worn out. You know, the guys that had done all the fighting had made this 17-mile march before they even went into battle. And it was a hot, humid day. They were worn out. Um, and there's not a lot of cavalry with either army. So... Cavalry is traditionally used for pursuit and follow-up. Well, they don't have a lot with them to do that pursuit and follow-up. And so it kind of made it easy for Washington to get his army out of there. Yeah, they're not moving very fast, but, you know, once night sets in, British are unfamiliar with the land, the roads, you know, you know which way the, the Americans might be going, and it kind of played in the Washington's hands for him to get the army out of there. So once they had fought all day long and then mm -hmm. they start to retreat, how far could they go? How long did they keep retreating? They went they as far stopped? as Chester that night, which the mileage off the top of my head from there is not that far, maybe 10 miles. But if the British the, stayed in Brandywine? The British stay in, in fact, the British stay in the Brandywine area, we'll call it, for five days. They don't move for five days. I mean, they sent some detachments out, but the bulk of the army stays for five days. Washington retreats to Chester that night. The next morning, they retreat north of the Schuylkill and get themselves in position down near um, the Falls of Schuylkill, like near where Germantown is today. And they eventually recross the, the Schuylkill um, up uh, down into like the, uh, like the, the Great Valley area, um, near where Immaculata College is today, before the British even move. So, you know, within five days, Washington's back south of the Schuylkill trying to figure out how to stop the British. The British captured Philadelphia shortly after? Yeah, September 26, I think, is the date they march in, yeah. which comes after a couple other things. You know, Battle Paoli comes before that. Um, there's some maneuvering to get Washington out of the way because Washington's trying to guess which four of the Schuylkill River they're going to cross to get into Philadelphia. So there's some maneuvering, but ultimately it's, it's September 26 that they march in. Did Washington keep trying to pr protect Philadelphia? He does up until the 26th, and by then, he, you know, he's not going to assault them you know, in, in the city itself. And then he does try to retake the city with the assault on Germantown on October 4th, which ends up not going his way either. But that was an attempt to get the city back. So once the British were in Philadelphia, where did Washington go? 
He's going to stay um, between like northern Chester County, Montgomery, what's today Montgomery County, um, for the rest of the fall. And then ultimately they end up at Valley Forge in December for the winter. So in, in the whole course of the war, how, how important was Brandywine in tipping it one way or the other? In the grand scheme of things, it didn't decide the war one way or the other. Now, there's some theory that coupled with um, Saratoga and Washington's, um, how hard the Army fought at both Brandywine and Germantown, is that the combination of all that is what led to the French alliance. So if you accept that argument, it did play a part in that at least. Uh, I, I want to ask you about one more th moment in here. At, yeah. uh, at There's one moment where the Americans may have performed a ruse on the advancing enemy when some of them apparently turned their guns upside down in a universal sign of surrender. Yeah. When the British moved forward, the Americans unleashed a point-blank volley, killing volley into their ranks that dropped nearly 30 members of the Queen's range. Isn't that kind of Mm -hmm. Bad sport. It's extremely bad sport, but you know it wasn't. You know, it's, there's several instances throughout the war from both sides where they're not exactly playing by the rules of war. And there's that instance at Brandywine. There's all kinds of them in the South by the British. You know, attacking civilians and killing prisoners and things like that. It's just it was a personal war. And part of the problem with the Queen's Rangers is they were a loyalist unit, so they were Americans. Mm. And so I mean, there's no hard evidence, but maybe you know maybe. They, they knew that, and they were like, well, you know, we're not going to let these guys capture us or surrender to these guys because they're not British troops, and, you know, maybe they didn't. I don't know that for sure. But In the front of the book, you have a dramatis personae, uh, mm -hmm. the list, the cast of characters. Do you have a favorite one in here who might not be a household name? It might not be a household name. Johann Ewald, who's a Hessian Jaeger officer, which is like the German version of light infantry. Um, he has an amazing account of the battle, a lengthy account in his diary. He's... Um, Outside, you know, the Revolutionary War circles, he's very, not very well known, but his diary is one of the best of the war. He fights in every major engagement of the war. He gets captured at Yorktown. Um, he's one-eyed. He'd lost an eye in a duel earlier in his life. Goes on to serve the Prussian kings after the war. And one of the sad things about him I learned when I read the preface of his diary, his, his grave in Germany was obliterated by Allied bombing during World War II. So nobody even knows where his grave is anymore. So. I just think he's an interesting guy, and, and one I think non-students of the war should know more about. So. Is there a, a big grave of the, for the victims of the Battle of, Getty, of Brandywine? No, it's not like later wars where you have these big national cemeteries. No, there's, um, most of them are, are going to be buried where they, they fell at the time on these farms and, and mass trenches, mixed together, two Americans with British. They're not separated. And today there's two known spots that are on public lands. Um, both are in cemeteries of meeting houses at Kennett Square and Birmingham Meeting House. And I, I'm almost positive there's other mass graves still on these private farms, but they're not accessible to the public. Yeah. Is this your first book? Yes, it is. You think you're going to try it again? Um, debating it. It's, I, this just came out, you know, that, not that long ago. Um, and so I want to see how this goes. Um, but yeah, I, I'm giving it some thought. I'm talking to my editor about it. <laughs> We are out of time. We've been speaking with Michael Harris. He is the author of this book, Brandywine, A Military History of the Battle That Lost Philadelphia But Saved America. Thank you very much. No, no problem. Thank you for having me.